When I was, when I was growing up, my favorite cartoon was Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. And uh, I mean, I'd come home after school and get a snack and just hit right for the TV and just watch reruns of, of the Coyote and Wiley, or Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner. And I, I realize I've just dated myself and three-fourths of the room has no idea what I'm talking about, but, but that's okay, let's just go with it. And so the whole premise of the Coyote and the Roadrunner is the Coyote wanted to catch the Roadrunner and just eat him. And, uh, and so he, he never could do it, no, no matter what he tried, uh, every attempt to catch the roadrunner failed. So he would try all kinds of things. You know, he would try strapping on rocket-propelled roller skates. Uh, he, would, he would shoot himself out of a cannon. He would launch himself with a giant slingshot. I mean, he tried all of these things to try to catch the elusive roadrunner, and he never could do it. Not one time. And I remember early on watching and telling my parents confidently, there's no way the coyote is ever going to catch the, catch the roadrunner. It's just impossible. And uh, that was a very safe prediction. And I was just thinking about it, church, and I was thinking, you know, isn't that the human storyline? Isn't that the story of the human race? That we, that we chase and pursue what the world tells us to chase and pursue to find satisfaction and happiness, only to have satisfaction and happiness completely elude us. That we give ourselves to the search day in and day out for satisfaction and happiness, but we end, up, we end up restless, we end up tired, we end up exhausted, and we end up more dissatisfied than ever. And no matter what he does, he's never going to catch the roadrunner. And every single human being since Adam and Eve has their own version of that same story. It's your story. It's my story. We, we've all done this. We, we've all chased after what the world promises will, will give us satisfaction and happiness, and we've all chased it. We've all given ourselves to the idea that if we do enough and have enough and be enough and achieve enough, then we'll be happy and satisfied. And we just find that it slips right through our fingers. You know, I pastored in, in, in our community a long time, and, and it's just been interesting over the years to observe what people live for here. It's just kind of, it's just kind of fascinating to, to watch human nature. There, there are a lot of people in our community that live for Center Grove sports. You know, they think if they can just live vicariously through their kids, and if their kids can just be athletic, athletically successful, and they can get that, that scholarship, you know what I mean, then as parents, you know, we'll be happy and satisfied. And it doesn't have to be just Center Grove sports. It can be Mooresville and Martinsville, Greenwood. It's all the same, right? I mean, it's all the same. But a lot of people sell out to that. And it's on the belief that that's what's going to bring satisfaction and happiness. There are a lot of people in central Indiana that sell out for money. And the thought is, if I can just get a little bit more, then I can be happy. And then some people in central Indiana, they, they go all in for pleasure and they just pursue pleasure at what, whatever cost because the thought is that's, that's kind of makes me feel satisfied and, and happy for at least a little while. And then some people just kind of give themselves to social media. They're pursuing likes and affirmations and following and, you know, followers and, and uh, just kind of Instagram beauty. And, and we, we think if I can just look like that, then I'll be satisfied and happy. And we just, we just never find it. I mean, we've all lived it. We've all said, I'll be happy when, and you just fill in the blank. I'll be satisfied when, 
and uh, you just complete the sentence. And the problem is the wind never comes. I mean, have you noticed that? Like it never comes. And we fall for it over and over and over again. We fall for the suggestion, okay, maybe I'm chasing the wrong thing. I'll chase this new thing. And then that's what will make me satisfied and happy. And if you're not careful, you spend your entire life chasing something that you can't possibly apprehend. And the reason why is because nothing in the world was really designed to satisfy us and make us happy. It just means, it just means that our desires and our yearnings are too big for everything that the world has to offer. We're looking for something bigger but we're looking for fulfillment in things that are smaller. And so we need something bigger. We need someone uh, bigger than, than really what the world can offer to us. And so the passage that we're going to look at this morning is, is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. It's the story of Jesus satisfying the hunger, the physical hum, hunger of, a, of a, a large group of people. But what I think this story really points to is a greater truth. And the greater truth is this, that Jesus satisfies our, our spiritual hunger, our deepest yearning. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to read Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. And I'm going to ask if you're willing and able, would you please stand just out of reverence that God has revealed himself to us in, a, in an incredible way. So listen to how Mark describes this. In verse 30, he says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish... He looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took, they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but not the word of God. It lasts forever. You may be seated. There are a lot of miracles that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there are only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. Isn't that interesting? Only two. Only two miracles recorded in all four Gospels. 
the resurrection of Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. Now, that would mean, at least on the surface, that the feeding of the 5,000 is the ranking miracle of all the miracles that Jesus did outside of, of the resurrection. I mean, this has to be the number one miracle because it's the one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. So it has to have huge significance for us to be recorded in, in all of the Gospels. So, so the question is why? And I think the answer to that is because of what it reveals about who Jesus is. Now, when you read through the Gospels, you, you, know, you really do get a picture of who God is. So, so we come to know the Father through, through the words and the works of the Son. Because Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we actually come to know what God is like through, through the picture that's painted to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We, we, we come to know God through the person of Jesus as recorded by the eyewitnesses. And what we see and what we've been talking about throughout this series, The Lion Roars, is, is the lion is the sovereign of the universe, right? That he is, he is all power. That is what is revealed to us in these early chapters of the Gospel of Mark, that he is, he is in control, that he is sovereign over every detail of our lives. And this revelation, this revealing, if you will, is very crucial, you know, to our faith. Now, you know, let's just kind of get big picture just for a minute and just think about, think about the Bible, think about Scripture. And what is, what is Scripture really about? You know, when you think from Genesis to Revelation, what, it, what is this book about? It, it's all about Jesus. I mean, he's the central character in this story. And, uh, and when, you, when you look at it, it is, it is really the revelation of the Son of God for us. And just think about the Old Testament, because so many of us kind of struggle reading the Old Testament. You know, we're kind of intimidated by it because there's all these difficult names and dates and things happening, and we just don't really know what's going on. But let me just kind of sum up the Old Testament for you. Really... The purpose of the Old Testament is, point, is to point to Jesus. That's what it's doing. From Genesis all the way to Malachi, it's like a sign that's pointing to the coming of the Messiah. And it is anticipating his arrival. It is foreshadowing his coming, his person and his work. And so the purpose of the Old Testament is for us to begin to see Jesus. And let me tell you, church, he's all over the Old Testament. You just got to look for him. Jesus is all over the Old Testament, inside and out. And then you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you ask, well, what's the purpose of the four Gospels? Really, the purpose of the four Gospels is to, is to detail the actual revealing of the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. So that's what, that's what the Gospel writers do, is they tell us about His coming. They, they tell us about His person and work. And then all the other books of the New Testament just explain the significance of His coming and then explain the consummation of all things, the new heaven and new earth at the end of time. There you go. That's what the entire Bible is all about. Now, once you understand the big picture, it starts the, the, the individual pictures that you get through books of the Bible become so much easier. And what you see is that Jesus is the central character in the story. And in fact, he's the central character in your story. And your life's not going to make sense until you understand that. You're just supporting cast. It's all about him. My life, your life, all of life 
is all about him. Now, earlier in chapter 6, Jesus has sent out the disciples in six groups of two, and he, he commissioned them to go. So you're going to see a turning in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is really going to start focusing on equipping the disciples to take over uh, his, his ministry. And that's what we really begin to see here in chapter 6. So he sends them out in, in groups of two, and so they're to be an extension of the ministry of Jesus. So they're preaching and teaching, they're healing, uh, they're casting out demons, and, uh, and so we're not really sure how long they've been out on mission, but we do know that they're making their way back. They're rendezvousing with Jesus. And verse 30 tells us that they begin to report to him everything that they said and did. And that's what Mark says, the apostles. And so that's the first time that Mark refers to the disciples as the apostles, because now they're sent out. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So they they were telling him stories of how the people responded to their preaching and teaching the gospel. They were telling him stories about how the lame could walk and the blind could see and, and uh, the deaf could hear and, and how the demon-possessed were set free and they were, they were blown away at that. And apparently, the disciples were absolutely exhausted. I mean, they were so tired. In fact, what we see in, in verse 31, Mark tells us, uh, for many were coming and going and they had, the disciples, the apostles, had no leisure even to eat. Like there were so many people, the crowds were so large. There were so many needs that they were meeting. They didn't even have time to eat themselves. That's how pressed they were on, on every side. And, and so then Jesus, he, he sees this and he gives them, he gives them an interesting invitation. Let me, let me show it to you in verse 31. Jesus says this, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Now, I love that picture because what you have here, and this is the first truth I want to, I want to share with you this morning about this, about this story is you really begin to see a summons from Jesus. He summons them to come with him to rest. Jesus, Jesus understands the heart of his disciples. He knows what's going on. He understands the chaos that they've been living. He understands that they're hungry, they're exhausted, they're tired, they're worn out after uh, a busy mission trip. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus doesn't criticize, he sympathizes. And he issues this summons to come away, to come and rest. And I think there's a great formula here for us, for us to find rest in Jesus as well. I think there's four parts of it. Let me, let me show it to you in verse, verse 31. The first thing, uh, the first part of this formula is that we are, we are to come with Jesus. We are to, we, Jesus says, come with me. You see that? He says, he says come away. Now, now, Mark doesn't word it quite that way, but we but just looking at this story in Luke's account, Luke tells us in Luke 9:10, he took them and withdrew. He took the apostles with him and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And so Jesus took the apostles with them. And, and, uh, and the reason why I think that is so significant and so important for us to realize is you see how personal God is. You see that, that God is not distant and detached. He's not apathetic and aloof to your needs and my needs. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows exactly your situation. 
He knows the burdens you're carrying. He knows the problems you're battling. He knows the adversities you're facing. He, he knows the temptations that you're giving into. He, he, he knows all of that. And instead of criticizing, he sympathizes and he issues a summons, come away with me. Come to me. And you, you're going to find rest. And uh, I, just, I just love that. And he, he wants the disciples to see that true rest is found in him and him alone. That true satisfaction comes only with a relationship with God. That, that's what he wants us to see. That there's really no satisfaction. There's no soul rest outside of a relationship with Jesus. It's only Jesus that satisfy, satisfies and gives that kind of rest. So, so that's the first part of the formula. Come, come with me, Jesus says. And, th and then he says this. This is the second part. Come by yourselves. Come by yourself. Like if we, if we want to find rest, what we have to do is we, we, we have to kind of detach from the world for a little bit, right? We, we, we need to leave friends and we need to leave our family and we, we, we need to leave our responsibilities and certainly social media. And we need some time to connect with him. Not a long time, but if we're going to find rest, right? If we're going to find that satisfaction, then we need, to, we need to come away with Jesus by ourselves. And we need to give him our undivided attention. And that's what he invites the disciples to. And, uh, you know, we live in the information age. We, we live in the di digital age. And what is, what's the one thing we're good at? Doing a lot of different things at one time. That's the one thing we're good at, right? Or maybe we're not so good at it. We just, we just keep trying to do it. We, we love multitasking. And I would, I would venture to say that the most precious commodity in the world today, because it's so rare, is undivided attention. Sometimes I'm tempted to pray one second and check Facebook the very next. Am I the only one that has done that? Yeah, I think we've all done that. And what it is, is it's a, it's a divided attention that, that kind of reveals a divided heart. And so Jesus says, come with me by yourselves and, and connect with me. See, Jesus knows we, we don't need more information. We, we don't need more activity. We, we don't need more doing. We need more being. Being with Jesus. And then the third part of this summons to rest is he says, you know, come with me by yourselves to a desolate place. He says to a desolate place. Now, that, that word desolate is probably not the greatest way to translate it in the Greek. Uh, it also means quiet. So Jesus issues the summons to them to come away with him to a quiet place. And uh, it's fascinating when you read through the Gospel of Luke. Luke. Luke records Jesus constantly moving away from the disciples, moving away from the ministry demands and the crowds and being alone with his heavenly Father. And what we see is that this, this quiet place was the source of Jesus' strength. It's what equipped him to do what he did and to love in the way that he loved. And if he needed that, we, we need that as well. And that's Jesus' summons to us. And then lastly, the fourth part of this is he says, come away with me by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Now that word rest means, literally, it means revival. It means renewal. It means, it means restoration. 
And the truth is that there are a lot of you here today, you're worn out. You're just exhausted. And you need, you need a renewal. You need a revival that only Jesus can give. And so, and so salvation comes not from being drained and empty and depleted, but it comes when we're filled up with Jesus. And, and so that's, that's where Jesus summons us. He summons us to a place of rest. There's a, in fact, there's, a, there's an even greater summons in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so we just live in an exhausted world and uh, a broken and tired world. And sometimes we get caught up in that. And I think what Jesus is pointing us to here is this, that we'll never find satisfaction if we're exhausted. And we need to start by by really coming to Jesus and hearing his summons. But there's a second truth I want to show you, and, and that is this, that there's a solution here without Jesus. So there's a summons from Jesus, but there's a solution without Jesus. So even as Jesus issues this invitation, this offer for the disciples to come away and rest, they're thinking about a solution apart from Jesus. Let me, <coughs> let me explain what I mean. So they get in the boat, and they're, they're going across the Sea of Galilee to a place where they can kind of retreat and get away, you know, from the crowds. And so the crowds on the shore of the Sea of Galilee see Jesus and the disciples going by. Word is spreading. And everybody on the shore around the Sea of Galilee anticipates where they're going to land. And they run a hundred yard dash to that location and beat the disciples there. So get this, thousands of people are making their way at a very rapid pace around the Sea of Galilee, anticipating where they're going to make landfall, and Jesus and the disciples hit the shore, and as soon as they get there, there are thousands of people waiting for them. So the disciples get out of the boat, and they begin ministering immediately to the crowd. So they're, they're you know, they're, they're, they're probably praying with people and ministering to them, trying to encourage them. They're probably teaching them. There's probably some miracles that are happening. And, and so all of this, while the disciples are absolutely exhausted, I mean, they're just running on fumes. And uh, the demands and the busyness just keep, keep following. And then Mark tells us that Jesus gets out of the boat and he looks at the crowd, and then I pick it up in verse, verse 34. Notice how Mark describes this. It says this, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that word compassion is an interesting word because it, it, it literally means, in the original language, care and concern from deep within. Like literally from Jesus' bowels, he felt concern and care as he looked at the crowd. Like he didn't see them as greedy people, he saw them as needy people. He, he didn't see them as a problem to be solved, he saw them as people to be loved. He, he didn't see them as an interruption, as a distraction from his agenda. He saw them as people made in the image of God. 
And Mark tells us that he had compassion on them. He felt care and concern to such a level that, he, that it, it was deep within it. And that's just how much he loves and cares about us. Now, what was it that moved him to compassion? Well, Mark tells us, uh, it says that uh, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, do you know, do you know what, he, what Mark means by that? It means they were leaderless. Do you know what a sheep without a shepherd is? It's a dead duck. That's what a sheep without a shepherd is. Absolutely dead sheep. Because sheep, sheep cannot take care of themselves. Sheep need someone to watch over them and care for them. Because think about it. I mean, sheep don't, they don't have exceptionally sharp teeth. They don't have great vision. They, they can't hear that great. They're not very fast. They're not going to sprint away from anything at any high rate of speed. They don't have wings to fly. They, they don't have a beak to fight back with. They, you know, they, if you turn, did you know, that if you turn a sheep over on its back, it can't roll over by itself. Did you know that? That's how, that's how vulnerable they are. And, and so they need someone to constantly care for them. And so what Jesus, what Jesus does is he has compassion on them because they don't have a shepherd. They're dead. They're lost. They are gone. And so what does Jesus do? Well, verse 34 tells us um, that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And so I think there's a little bit of a contrast here. If sheep without a shepherd are dead, Jesus begins to teach. He begins to give them his word. And, and, and what is the word of God? It's life-giving, that the Word is living and active. And what Jesus is ministering to them is he's ministering life to them, truth to them. And, and the Word says you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And, and, so, and so his response is to give them the bread of of life. What Jesus knows is that men and women do not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's, that's what he gives them. He gives them the shepherding of his word. And he knows that there's an emptiness there that if it's not addressed, it will, it will be devastating. They will, they will starve forever. And he knows that it's his word that ultimately satisfies. Now, this is where we begin to see the solution without Jesus, because I want you to notice how the disciples respond to this, and you see this in verse, verses 35 and 36. And so, and so Mark records this, and when it grew late, so Jesus has been teaching them, and, and it started getting late, started getting kind of dark, and the disciples came to Jesus and they said, you know, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late, send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Now, do you remember back in verse 31 where I was talking about how the disciples were tired and the disciples were hungry? Do you guys remember that? And what was Jesus' solution to that? His solution to that was to the disciples, come away with me, come to me, and you're going to find rest. 
what's interesting about this is now the crowds are in the exact same situation. They're hungry, they're tired, they're exhausted. And the solution that the disciples present to the crowds is go away from Jesus. Go on your own. Go, go figure it out yourself. And what you see here is the disciples leaning on their own self-sufficiency, looking to themselves as the answer to the need of the hour. And they're sending them away in arrogance, assuming that Jesus is not the answer, Jesus is not the solution, we don't need him, just move away and take care of it yourself. They thought they were solving a problem. And I think Jesus senses their self-sufficiency, and he pushes back on them. Verse 37, you see this, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. And so Jesus sees the folly of their solution. There's nowhere they're going to go to find their needs met. That's not, that's not the solution. And Jesus presses in on their self-sufficiency by saying, you give them something to eat. You see that in verse 37? Why don't you feed them? Why don't you take care of them? And then they're just absolutely incredulous about that response. So they push back on Jesus and they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them, you know, give that to them to eat? And they're basically saying, that's not even, that's not even possible. You know, it would take eight months wages, which is what 200 denarii really is. And, and that's not even going to feed the whole crowd. And what they're saying is, Jesus, it's impossible. What you ask is impossible. To which I think Jesus probably said something along the lines of, I know it's impossible to you, but it's not impossible to me. I think what Jesus is trying to show them is their own self-inadequacy, the own, their own limitation, the, the folly of their self-sufficiency. He's trying to show them that there's no satisfaction in them, and there's certainly no satisfaction that can be had in the world. That's what he wants to show them. That, that, that real satisfaction comes from the endless supply that Jesus has. That's what he's trying to reveal to the disciples. That's what he wants them to see is we're limited. But God is not. He has an endless supply. We have a very limited supply. You know, most Sundays, if you're looking for, you know, for me and Lou Ann, we, we usually go to McAllister's for lunch after church on Sunday. Um, we're there most, most Sundays. And I, I go there because I like the sweet tea. So I don't know if you have had their sweet tea, but it's absolutely delicious. So they got a lot of different kind of flavors to it. And at McAllister's, did you know that they have a tea pass there? Did you know that? Um, I'm not making any money off this, but, uh, but you could, for one fee, they'll give you a glass, they'll give you a cup, and you can get you can get an endless supply of sweet tea for an entire month. You just bring that thing in there and they'll just refill it, top it off, top it off, top it off. You know, and it's absolutely ingenious. You know, you drink it down and then, you know, you got to go back and get more. And uh, they just have an endless supply. And it's, it's really quite good, actually. Um, and uh, and I, think, I think what Jesus wants the disciples to realize is their own limitations, their own limited supply. 
and his endless supply. There's, there's no limit to what the power of God can do, and that's, that's what we're going to see. You see, in Jesus, in Jesus, we're, we're going to find satisfaction. Every human solution fails, but Jesus' solution satisfies. And that's where we see a third truth, and that is a surrender to Jesus. You see, if there's going to be a if there's going to be a supper, there's going to have to be a surrender. If there's going to be a filling, there's going to have to be a letting go. Let me show you what I mean. Look at, look at verse 38, and uh, you really begin to see what, what Jesus wants to do. So, so the disciples have pushed back. They said, you know, even if we had eight months' wages, where, where are we going to find enough food? How's that even going to cover this, this size of the crowd? Church, let me tell you, there are 5,000 men here which meant there's probably north of 20,000 people. You have 5,000 men, there's probably 5,000 women, and then you got relatives, kids, aunts and uncles. There's north of 20,000 people on this shore. And, uh, and so, you know, Jesus says, you find them something to eat. And the disciples are like, that's impossible. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm the God of the impossible. Look at verse 38, look at what he says. He says, he says how many loaves do you have? Go and see and they report back that they've, they've found five loaves and two fish. And so we know from the other gospel accounts that they found this. Uh, a little boy had a lunch. And uh, he had in that lunch five loaves and two fish. The loaves were not really big loaves of bread as we kind of think about, but probably biscuits, kind of crusty, hard biscuits. So, um, so apparently they found a little boy who's mother got mother of the year because you know she was the only one who had her son prepared for that long day and uh so whoever she was kudos to her um and um and so they find five loaves and two fish from from this kid and i love this part of the story and i wish mark had brought out more about this but the disciples go up to that little boy and they say you know can we can we have your lunch and I'm sure his first thought is, no, <laughs> I'm going to eat that. I brought that. I'm the only one prepared. I'm not giving it up, you know. But, you know, the Spirit of God moved him. And you know what he did? He handed it over to Jesus. He surrendered it to Jesus. And I love it. It's beautiful because when, when we do that, whatever it is, whether it's your time or your talent, or your treasure, whatever you hand it to Jesus, whatever you give to him, whatever you surrender to him, he takes a little and he turns it into a lot. He takes our surrender and he multiplies it into a beautiful miracle. And that's exactly what is happening here. He surrenders his meal to this, to this little boy. And I think we begin to see that 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 satisfaction really begins in surrender, church. That's where satisfaction is found. I know, I know it's contrary to what the world says. I know it's contrary to what our sinful nature tells us. I know it's contrary to what Satan tells us. But satisfaction is so paradoxical. It comes through surrendering to Jesus. That's how we're satisfied. And that's what Jesus wants the disciples to learn. That it's only in, 
in giving up that we go up. It's only in dying to ourselves that we're raised to new life. It's only when we give away that we have plenty. Because, because God has an endless supply. That's what he wants to see. And so the question for you and for me is this. What do you need to surrender to Jesus today? What is it that you're holding on today? And it could be some fear. Something you've just meditated on and you have, you have thought through every worst case scenario and you've allowed that fear to displace faith. What is that for you? You know, it could be some hurt that you've had in your life, some unforgiveness, some bitterness. And, and, and so maybe you need to surrender that. Maybe you need to trust the promises of God that God will avenge. He will repay so you don't have to. Maybe you need to surrender insecurity and uncertainty about the future. Man, there is so much uncertainty in the world today. Praise God, we have a Savior who holds our future in His hands. Maybe you need to, maybe you need to surrender that again. It could be disappointment or discontentment. It could be your children. You know, if you're a parent, you know just how frustrating parenting is to try to get your kids to do the right thing. I mean, you, you guys know what I'm saying? Like, you, you, in, your, in your kids are selfishness and, and foolishness and irresponsibility. And, and uh, man, it is so, it could pull all your hair out just trying to get them on the right track. And I'm almost there myself. So, um, and, and so you know what I'm talking about. And finally, you have to come to that place. God, I just give them to you. You have them. I don't want them anymore. You take them, Lord. To which Jesus says, why don't we start there instead of ending there, you know, next time? I don't know what it is you need to surrender. I just know when you give up, you go up. When you humble yourself, God will raise you up. I just know that. And then we see, lastly, a satisfaction in Jesus. Look at verse 39. I love how this turns out. Verse 39, Mark tells us, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. This is, these are banqueting groups. So he, this is like Jesus getting the table set. Like he's getting them organized into groups so that they can share a meal. And they, they know this. They know something good is about to, about to happen. And, th and then you see verses 41 and 42 and 43. He says this, And taking the loaves, the five loaves, and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing. He broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and divided the two fish among them all. So here's, here's the picture. He takes the little boy's loaves and fish, and uh, he says a blessing. So he blesses God for the provision of the food. So he's not praying for the food, for the Holy Spirit to fill the, the biscuits and fish. He's just simply thanking the Father for the provision of the food, which is what a table blessing is. And then he just begins breaking the biscuits. And he's breaking these biscuits. And he breaks five. And those five turn into ten. And he breaks 10 and those 10 turn into 100. And he breaks the 100 and they turn into 1,000. And he's breaking 
and they're just multiplying, multiplying. And it's, it's fascinating, church, because you're talking about wheat in the form of a biscuit that's never been in the ground before. You're, you're talking about fish multiplying, multiplying right in front of Jesus that have never been in the sea before. Can you imagine how good these biscuits and fish tasted? I mean, they're straight from heaven, right? Like there's no, this is not sin-cursed food. This is, this is manna from heaven. And, and, and Jesus is just providing it and, and multiplying it. And it's, it's just growing and growing. And the disciples are just wide-eyed because, I mean, they, they, they have more than they can give out. And uh, it just keeps coming and coming and coming because with Jesus, there's an endless supply. He takes our little and he turns it into a lot. And it brings great satisfaction because he's the one who fills our deepest yearnings. I, I don't know if you've noticed about this, but um, a lot of Bible commentators say that the feeding of the 5,000 is the, is the 23rd Psalm of the New Testament. Because what did the people learn? The people learned, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is what provides. He led them to green pastures beside calm waters. He prepared a table before them. Their cup runneth over. They had basketfuls extra and uh, the people ate Mark tells us and were satisfied the Lord is my shepherd I, I shall not be in want this is the 23rd Psalm right here and um, and what it says is is that our satisfaction comes from our shepherd that our happiness comes from being you know, in relationship with him, from trusting in him. John 6, 35 says it like this. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so in Jesus, there is a perpetual rest. There is a perpetual satisfaction. Our hearts are shaped and formed to be satisfied only by him. And you're like, well, Scott, how, how, do you, how do you know that? Well, I, I know it from our text. Because what Mark tells us is that he, he took the loaves, he blessed them, he broke, and he gave. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. He took his body, he blessed those who abused him, spit on him, cursed him, beat him. He allowed them to break his body and he gave it. He gave it away. And he did that because he loves you and he loves me. And that's why he satisfies. See, we're made to be loved. And it's only his love that fills us. It's not anything in the world. See, our desires are way too big for what the world can offer but God offered it in the form of his son. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible miracle that reminds us 
of our own limitation, our own inadequacy, our own brokenness. And God, we just come and confess that so many times we've tried to solve problems without you. We've looked to the world, we've looked to, we've looked to ourselves, we've, we've looked in a thousand different places except, except you, and we just confess that. And we ask for your forgiveness, and we thank you for the promise that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, I just pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see the truth that only you satisfy. Only you give life. Only you give bread that satisfies. And so thank you for revealing this great miracle to us. And we ask that you would continue, God, that you would just show us how you take our little and turn it into a lot filling us up to overflowing. And so God, we ask that your spirit would just be manifested in this place, that you would be working, you would have the freedom to move our hearts, to speak to our hearts, to cleanse our hearts, to change our hearts today. And so we thank you and praise you and all of God's people said, amen. We're gonna, we're gonna sing a closing song and church our response team is going to come forward and um, we, we don't want to be a church that prays we want to be a praying church